Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Around the World in 30 Minutes or So. I'm Nick Serrano. It's going to be joined by uh, the director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, Andy, and we're going to get into some issues that are going on in international news. Uh, hopefully, you guys had a chance to listen to our 2016 roundup. It was a really good show. We're going to be doing the same thing again today. I hope you guys enjoy it. You can find us on Facebook under Chicago Podcast Network, on Twitter under Chicago Podcast One, and you can find us, uh, email us on Gmail at Chicago Podcast Network at gmail.com thank you so much for downloading this please please subscribe on itunes or podcast addict other than that ladies and gentlemen here we go Hey everybody, thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of Around the World in 30 Minutes or So. I am Nick Serrano's Editor-in-Chief, host and grand poobah of the Chicago Podcast Network, joined by the Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, Andy Zemanidis. And we are here today to get through... Some of the big international news of the week. We got three stories we're going to hit: uh, North Korea and its nuclear testing, the volatility of the Chinese markets. But we're going to start today dealing with what is one of the bigger stories going on in the world, which is the uh, current escalating situation between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and what it means for the rest of the world. Uh, for those of you who don't know, last week uh, Saudi Arabia executed a Shia man named Namir on Namir. Uh, and as a result of that, the Iranian government has essentially cut off diplomatic ties with Saudi Arabia, and the situation is getting uh, violent and crazy. And Andy's here, and we're going to kind of get Now, we've done some shows. We've talked about the refugee crisis, and this is part of that. And th- that whole issue, and gradually the entire Middle East, is coming to a point of almost civil war across the entire region between uh, the seculars, the religious fanatics, and then just your traditional state powers, not to include, also including the Saudi royal family and all the controversies that they have, which I should tell you, I had a fun thing getting ready for this show. Scandals involving the royal family of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, those people know how to party. Yeah, Oil money will do that for you, Uh, but... Picking up on on what you said, the civil wars, the the Middle East is right now marked by a series of civil wars. There, uh, as you said, there's secularists uh, versus Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, There are uh, traditional state rivalries. There are there's the rise of obviously non-governmental organizations or entities, some which have captured states. Hezbollah, for example, is uh, part of the governance of Lebanon. Hamas is part of the the governance of the Palestinian territories. ISIS right now uh, is a multi-state entity, uh, terrorist organization. Um, And and what Saudi, the Saudi-Iranian Saudi Arabian and Iranian split of this week shows probably something that's at, at the root of a lot of the civil wars, which is a, a Sunni-Shia split, something that's been centuries long. Um, it's far more complicated than just religion, but the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia is kind of the Sunni state. Uh, 
Uh, it's the Sunni vanguard, and Iran is the Shia vanguard. So, how much do you know about the difference between Sunni and Shia, and their well, beliefs? Well, it the the schism between the Sunnis and Shia is in essence about uh, who is the proper successor to the the Prophet Muhammad, and the the Shia. Uh, actually, th- their full name is Shia Ali, which is the party of Ali, uh, <coughs> who was uh, the first successor. He wasn't the first successor of Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad's first successor was his father-in-law, but uh, Ali was the first one that was blood-related to Muhammad, and uh, he was deposed and, and murdered, and uh, that has kicked off kind of a century worth of uh, martyrdom and feeling uh, disenfranchised by the Shia. and uh, But I, right now, the, the Shia-Sunni split is much bigger than that, and it's probably less religious than it is, you know, civilizational, territorial. Who, who's going to control, you know, you see the Saudis uh, back... In, in Yemen, one party, Iran, backs uh, or, or one group of people, Iran, backs another. Uh, same thing going on in Syria. Uh, Iraq was the ultimate ba- battleground. Saddam and the Sunnis ruled a majority Shia state for a while. The Shia uh, be- get to be the elected majority, and you know they encourage their own sectarian violence which then ends up resulting in first Al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and now ISIS. So while we may say Shia and Sunni, it's not just a, some type of you know, crazy uh, religious war. It's the, the Shia states and the Sunni states kind of taking the place of uh, something we may understand better is here was the, the NATO countries in the Warsaw Pact. From your understanding... How much of it is a treaty-based, or his treaty is because that's on paper, but more of an alliance based between Sunni countries and Shia countries? Is there, as you just described it, is is there sort of that tacit alliance where they help each other out as much as they can, or is there infighting, as you understand it, in those groups as well? Do do Iraqi uh, Sunnis fight with other Sunnis in the region over control of stuff, or do they... No, no, yeah, it is, it is, I mean, the Gulf, the Gulf Cooperation Council, as you see, you, you pointed out that Iran cut off relations with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia then expelled its, uh, the Iranian ambassador, and then countries like Kuwait and other Saudi allies around uh, the Persian Gulf expelled uh, the, their Iranian uh, ambassadors as well. So there are certain groups, like the Gulf Cooperation Council, will, which will largely follow uh, Saudi's uh, lead, uh, Iraq right now, presently Baghdad and and the Shia in Iraq are very closely aligned with Iran. Um, you know, there's not a lot of other majority Shia state in in the Middle East, but you'll see Iran. Uh, you know, I talked about Iran backing Hamas. Uh, well, Hamas is Sunni, so. There are a lot of interests. It's it's far more complicated. There is no treaty-based organization. Uh, there are also disputes between the Sunnis 
Yeah, a year ago, I could have given you a great analysis about how you had a Sunni, an inter-Sunni dispute that was Saudi Arabia and Egypt on one side versus Turkey and Qatar uh, on the other. Uh, so there's, uh, it, it's not as cut and dry. The the Middle East is, it's a uh, very confusing diagram if you put a concentric circles and depending on the issue, who is where. But still. This week is significant because the Saudis and the Iranians, they are really the pillars of those two identities, the, the Sunni identity and the Shia identity. And even more importantly, they're the two most likely countries that could really disrupt global oil markets. I know that a part of this comes from the fact that a lot of the strife that's been going on is because oil prices for the last year or so have not dropped significantly but they've been steadily going down and then when the prices pick back up you you start to see more of a easing intention and the prices go back down and things seem to get worse how much of what we see in the middle east do you think is strictly oil related do you think it's majority of it no i don't think it's i don't think any of it is strictly oil related first of all um i think Prices of oil have absolutely collapsed. We're talking about, we remember when they were over $100 a barrel, and at, uh, at some point in the last two weeks, they had cracked into the high 20s yeah. at barrel. Uh, some of it is also, some of it was intentional by, you know, OPEC, uh, which Saudi, Saudi Arabia has a tremendous voice in, refused to, or keeps refusing to put caps on production. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that that is motivated by uh, an intention to, to do three things. One, put a lot of pressure on Russia, uh, which is also a major oil producer, put a lot of political pressure on Iran, but also slow down the shale oil revolution, uh, both in the United States, in Canada, and even in, in some European countries that are starting to look at shale uh, because uh, the OPEC countries want their Western consumers to, to remain uh, in, their, uh, in their pocket. Well, the, the, you mentioned the Western consumer thing. I've always been struck by the idea, and it, and it goes just beyond oil, but in, in many of the dealings that the United States has with uh, countries, one I always like to point to is China. Uh, people always say that if China wanted to really hurt the United States, they could pull you know, a lot of their economic interests out of the United States. Would you look at them and go, yes, but they need our consumer base to be able to do it. Majority of countries who have modern economies actually rely on the United States just almost perverse need to consume and use that uh, to grow their own economics. When you look at the Middle East and how this stuff is, especially with the shale oil, which is, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that we, we talk about shale oil, which for those of you who don't know, that's fracking, and is a very controversial thing in some areas when done uh, strictly by some of these companies who just destroy local uh, nature and everything like that. But the... To me, that they're so freaked out about something that here in the United States... 40% of the people don't even want done anymore because they either don't understand what you know shale fracking is. Do you see, and I know we're going to do what's going on in the next week, but do you see in the next like 10 years 
the United States finally being able to transition away from Middle East oil? And if we did do that, wouldn't you see... It's going to happen in the next three years. You think so? Yeah, I mean, we're already, you know, we went, we're, we're already naturally gas, uh, natural gas independent. By 2020, actually, we become a net exporter. And uh, and the Middle East is not even, if you look at foreign markets, it's not even our number one producer, our number one supplier of, of foreign oil. So, uh, you know, the, the, the real challenge for the United States is not transitioning away from the Middle East oil. And not using Middle East oil also doesn't keep us free of Middle East oil because oil, the price of oil, is still is, determined. It's still determined on global oil markets. Right? Uh, so we're not nationalizing uh, you know, uh, oil resources. Imagine, you know, we can't, we, ha- we have, you know, a healthcare exchange and we're calling that socialized medicine here in the United States. Uh, there's no way we're going to nationalize uh, oil resources. Uh, so, but the real challenge for the United States is how do you transition away from those fossil fuels completely? Can you, can you take this, uh, this kind of breathing room that you've been given by fracking, right? And remember, it's come up with oil and gas, and uh, not to mention other sources of energy that we're developing. Yeah, but but those two, especially because what everybody was worried about in the mid two thousands was we've hit peak oil, we're done, we're going to be you know slaves to to Middle East oil and natural gas. Well, we've avoided that in the last ten years. Now, can we do? Can we do what really needs to be done, is, which is invest in other renewable sources of energy and be completely free from the hydrocarbon and, and fossil fuel mar- market? Um, and then, then the oil markets or what's being produced in the Middle East doesn't really have as big of an effect on our, uh, on our energy prices here. Before we get off of this topic, the last thing I want to bring up is there was the report from... Iran accusing Saudi Arabia of bombing their embassy in Yemen, which a lot of people who follow this stuff, much more connected than even you and I are, uh, were saying it was a propaganda move. In your dealings with uh, this kinds of foreign relations, how much of a propaganda move, not a propaganda move, how much of what takes place as far as the, for lack of a better term, leap talking that goes on between countries is just strictly propaganda for their people to keep them on their side because it, it, this story if, if you look into this bombing in, in yemen people are saying like there's not even damage to the building that could be the result of a bombing but iran is making this claim which unfortunately under the rules that we all kind of agree to and how countries deal with each other has to be acknowledged in some way it's a very bizarre story the middle east is a very bizarre region uh the yemen is significant outside of this this embassy story because it's ground zero for the proxy war between iran and saudi arabia uh and you know you're going to see a lot of bravado um and it's probably only going to increase you know the the shia cleric that was executed by the saudis 10 years ago, he might not have been executed because the Saudis would not have 
felt on the defense against a larger Shia movement. Uh, you know, the reactions, it, it's actually the relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran are fascinating because what a lot of people forget, it was a long time ago, but that the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, they were part of the U.S.'s dual pillar strategy in the Middle East. They were the two allies which we built everything around in the Middle East. This is the and, early days of the Cold War, right? Yeah, and it was all the way up through the Shah. Yeah. Right? Then you had the Khomeini and the Iranian Revolution. Then you had the Iraq War. You had Persian Gulf War One. You had Persian Gulf War Two. You know this. This has been unraveled st- steadily and over decades. Uh, the problem is, is that nobody has an answer right now, and you need countries that are competing in one. Saudi Arabia and Iran are going at each other in Yemen, but you need them somehow to come to some agreement in Iraq and Syria. Otherwise, you can't beat ISIS. So, you know, all of this uh, further complicates. Uh, a coherent U.S. strategy uh, when it comes to ISIS and Syria and Iraq uh, may preclude it altogether. Uh, the, the, this may have caused this, this development between Saudi Arabia and Iran may have cost uh, President Obama and Kerry their chance to really bring Syria to some type of close by the end of this presidency. Um, and it just leaves the Middle East in a mess. Uh, people throwing up their hands. The Middle East is certainly, maybe not because of this administration, but in some senses because, you know, the administration did things that made it worse. But there were forces unleashed during the Bush years that, that we, we let the genie out of the bottle. Uh, the Middle East right now, I think the Saudis and Iranians are being far more aggressive than they may have been 10 years ago because or even eight years ago because there's this perception in the middle east that the u.s is washing its hands walking away you know that this president doesn't really care to be involved in the middle east that the american people don't really care to be involved in the middle east so we have to be taking care of ourselves you have vladimir putin going to the middle east and telling people hey you might not be my friend you might not like me, but look at how I treat my friends. I'm always standing by them, whereas the Americans just, you know, run away from people. Um, there's the tension between the U.S. and it's even some of its longest-standing allies like Israel. Uh, how it treated some of the countries in the, in the Arab Spring. So it's a very, very confused region. Very more complicated now than it ever has been. Yeah, I just want to tell everybody, if you haven't had the opportunity and you're not a, you don't watch the show regularly, if you find this topic interesting, uh, you can go on PBS and watch the show Frontline, and they have several very good documentaries that deal with the Middle East, uh, several about the rise of ISIS, the war that uh, took place uh, both under George Bush and Barack Obama, and most recently, I don't know if you saw the Netanyahu one they did, fantastic piece that gets into the United States and Israel relations under President Obama, which he is quickly going from one of my favorite presidents of all time to one of my least, but just the more I learn about the stuff that's been happening in his administration, it's it's very disconcerting to me. I want to move on, though. We only have about 10 minutes left on the show here, and I, I want to get into a little bit what's going on with North Korea and China, and 
you sent me, uh, you know, to get ready for this show, and then, you know, this is a podcast, we're not a radio show here, so we can be a little less formal with people. It's, Andy tends to pick the topics a little bit more than I do on the international news. He's more in tune with that. And he sent me an article, and the third story, which does relate to the North Korea story, was about China devaluing their currency, which the yuan, is, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. It, I get it always confused. The, the, okay, because I always get it confused with the yen. It's... To me, I am not a person who understands economics at the level that I probably should, but it's as I went to school to be a broadcaster, man. I didn't study economics. What I do know, in a large part, and I'm kind of ashamed of it, but it's just the facts, I learned from a book called Debt of Honor by Tom Clancy. <laughs> and it has to do with how China has bought a, a large amount of American debt, holds that in their pocket as almost a negotiating tactic with the United States. How does their devaluing of their currency hurt the United States? And I also know that they had a cap on their markets that if a 7% drop took place, it shut down trading for the day. Uh, That has now been rescinded. Can you explain to all of us what exactly that meant for the rest of the world? Not so much for China, but what it means for everybody else. Well, first of all, you know, there's... Ever since China is becoming a bigger, has been becoming a bigger part of the global economy, there have been the worries of debt manipulation, currency manipulation. Uh, I think this issue on the debt, by the way, that you referred to, is one of those overplayed ones that, oh my God, the Chinese own us. Well, no, it goes back, it's like a theory of, you know, mutually assured economic destruction. You know, if the dollar collapses, they're holding a trillion dollars uh, and, and that's their foreign currency so that's like gold for them uh, people didn't know how to properly value their market because uh, you had tremendous government uh, intervention there uh, you didn't know how things were valued uh, companies Chinese industries uh, and nobody believed the valuation of their currency so as China is starting to remake its own economy because it also doesn't want to be purely an export uh, economy. It wants to get more and and continue getting foreign direct investment. Uh, It it wants to be far and away the biggest economy and a global economic power. Uh, If nobody believes its numbers, it's not going to be the economic power that can that can set the rules, right? They can buy influence, but they can't set the rules. So over the last few years, they've been, you know, doing things like, okay, we'll open up our currency and let the market set on it, and we will stop intervening as a government in the market. Uh, There have been several analysts in the United States uh, who have been saying, you know, once they finally stop intervening, you know, as a government in their market, they're going to collapse, uh, one, somebody who I know very well, a fellow named uh, Jim Chanos, who's on CNBC all, all the time, whose company is called Kinikos, which is cynic. <laughs> His Twitter handle is Diogenes, which is fantastic. He's been shorting China for years. And I can only venture to guess how much money he's made this uh, this summer uh, or this these last few months because... The collapse you saw in the, in the Chinese market today or this week was happened at the end of last year 
too. So, um, and China doesn't know because they haven't really dealt with markets before. Uh, the circuit breakers were a reaction to the, uh, the extreme fall last year, and then they realized that the circuit breakers actually make the problem worse because when people know that at 7% it gets shut off, they sell more rapidly, so that they get their sales in, their orders in before the 7%. So they removed that. Uh, I think they're slowly learning you know, how to handle markets. But what's impressive about this, and it goes back to our 2008 crisis and if you remember the first tarp plan right. voted down by congress correct and the markets went bananas and then caused almost another black tuesday and then congress came back and approved it how strong markets are right here's china you know the last remaining really strong communist state is being able to do what it's want, everything it it's wanted to do economically, the one that everybody's telling us we got to watch out for, that they're going to be giving us orders. You know, Donald Trump is saying, hey, you know, we used to be able to run roughshod over China, now China's running roughshod over us. You know, but every country in the last few years has been tamed by what? By the markets. Uh, so it'll be interesting, something to watch with China is will the markets make the government be more transparent? And if the government becomes more transparent, is there a transition to kind of a more liberal Chinese regime? Because everything that we've done, giving them freer trade, covering up their human rights abuses and all the rest, hasn't, you know, the greater engagement that we are promised uh, when when we gave most favored nation status never came, it'd be very it'd be fascinating to see if these impersonal markets can do it. All right, we got about five minutes left. I want to hit on one story, and then I want to get North to, Korea, which is in America has this weird, simultaneous scary yet funny thing when you mention it. I don't know how much of that is just from the movie, the the interview, but it goes from before that as well. Uh, you can also yeah, look at all the... Team America. Damn right. <laughs> By Matt and Trey, yeah. the America's best satirists. The story that comes out this week is that North Korea claims that they detonated a hydrogen bomb. Majority of the world uh, that studies these things, as I understand it, say that no, they didn't really detonate a true hydrogen bomb. They detonated a bomb with uh, properties of a, of a nuclear mm -hmm. weapon, but not an actual nuclear weapon. They, of course, celebrated and had parades, and, and they, as I understand it, refer to them as uh, treasured swords, which is my favorite term for a nuke I've ever heard in my life. The more North Korea, though, is apparently... I don't know, showing off for the rest of the world, China is in a reactionary status because it's up to China basically as the only country with real access and political influence on North Korea whose North Korea's existence depends on China helping them out a lot with basically everything. China has been trying to put pressure on North Korea to step this down, and Kim Jong-un has not done that. As you look at this situation... And granted, this is Asia, so it's a much different kind of thing to look at. Do you see China taking a more aggressive role with North Korea to try to get them to tone it down? And do you think that there's anything that they can actually do to make them stop? Because the rumor is, from what I've read, 
that the biggest fear that China has right now is due to North Korea's postures, posturing that they will have economic sanctions put on China to behoove them to work more with North Korea. Well, China itself will never get economic sanctions. That's, and that's, and that's what I've seen, they, too. Uh, there may be Chinese banks that get economic sanctions. There's certainly going to be around a new round of economic sanctions that put in there that limit financing to North Korea. So there will be Chinese banks because the leading banks that go and invest in North Korea are out of China and they're going to have to make a decision whether they're going to risk doing business with the rest of the world uh, over investing in, in North Korea. This is something that happened during you know the Iran negotiations as well. Uh, North Korea is a very strange state because v the identity of the state, especially over the last decade, uh, is tied up with having possessing nuclear weapons. That's what they're known for, possessing nuclear weapons. Uh, it's also the situation, it's also the, 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 uh, the example that I point to to say, why are we trusting that the Iran deal is going to work out? Because the Iran deal looks a lot the way, uh, a lot like the North Korean deal looked like when President Clinton cut it. So um, North Korea is a very strange place. It's a hermit kingdom. They control the internet there. They control everything. They're, it's not, uh, you know, they starve their people. Uh, Kim Jong-un is, a, you know, nobody really knows anything about him. There's these wild stories about him, you know, executing advisors who, who turn on him and feeding them to dogs and vultures. Uh, China, uh, China's biggest concern, I think, are huge refugee flows, instability on its border, and the U.S., you know, potential U.S. military or U.S. allied military presence going in, into North Korea. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, with these sanctions. Um, but North, North Korea is going to be a wild card. All right, before we get out of here for the day, we're almost done. What are you looking? At, what are the stories you're going to be looking at in the next week? That yeah, watch the State of the Union. Right, it's, a yeah. pres it's President Obama's last State of the Union. I'm going to be there. Uh, I've heard. Um, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, so, uh, so it'll be very interesting. He says it's not going to be a, uh, one of his traditional, uh, one of the traditional State of the Unions. Uh, it will be particularly interesting to see what he talks about vis-a-vis -vis ISIS in the Middle East. Uh, if he calls out any particular international issues that he's going to want to take on in his last year in office, uh, I would hope, I would hope, I, I'm not expecting it, I'm not expecting it, but our organization is going to be part of an effort, along with others, to ask him to designate a genocide, uh, what ISIS is doing to religious minorities, to have him call it a genocide in the State of the Union, um, but uh, that that would be the number one thing to watch this week. All right. Thank you so much for coming in, Andy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Around the World in 30 Minutes or so. We actually got it right around 30 minutes. It's been about a 31-minute show. So uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Facebook, Chicago Podcast Network. And you can email uh, myself or anybody at the show, Chicago Podcast Network at gmail.com. You can also go to Halk. What is your actual one? At HellenicLeaders.com. There you go. And uh, check out everything they've got going on there. Uh, thank you so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I end this as I always do. We out!
106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.